Welcome to episode 37 of the What's Up podcast, recorded by Old Ricky Astro. It's the 31st of May, 2019. It's been a rather long couple of weeks for us here, so today's topics are going to be covering what's making us feel really old, the wrinkles, blemishes, and the amount of reminiscing that we've been getting up to. Obviously, the question is, who are we? <laughs> uh, I'm Ali. Hi, all. Hello, and I'm William. And my name is Martin. Uh, we're the usual hosts of this podcast. So let's kick off with this week's topics, talking about wrinkles. William. You, you are tell. looking a bit more wrinkly. Thanks, gents. Yeah, the grey hairs, all those things. <laughs> These are even more old age wrinkles uh, occurring on a spherical body nearby. Uh, so these are the, the moon. Is he talking about us? <laughs> <laughs> the moon is shrinking, uh, which is a bit of a shock um, um, and has been revealed, well, recently, you know, paper which has come out, which has uh, managed to show some excellent evidence that over... The last, I think it was a few million years, the moon might have shrinked by about 50 metres. So it's not, it's not getting much smaller in the night sky, don't worry. It's so this isn't a good crash diet to go on to get that summer body ready? No, not okay. quite. No. <laughs> Hang on, you're, no, you're getting confused. Wrinkles, diets, no. Wait, 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 you're losing heat instead of weight. Is that why the moon's shrinking? No. Like, it's cooling down, right? Yes, That's, yeah. effectively, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's cooling, and as it cools, it shrinks. It's still cooling, which is amazing, really, considering it's, what, four and a half billion years old since its creation. But it's still effectively... Looks all right for four and a half billion. Yeah. <laughs> it's effectively still shrinking. It's a little bit battered, isn't it? Um, That's true. But the beauty of this, and I think a very exciting thing about this, is that it's, they have shown this result using data taken by Apollo equipment on the Yay. moon. How cool is that? Um, they have, when the Apollo astronauts visited, they, most of the missions, if not all of the missions, put for, down... The, uh, the press release, for some reason, 17 got wasn't ignored. There. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they had enough seismometers or something by that point. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so he's just given the punchline. But they put size monitors. Um, so they put down devices to measure moonquakes, not earthquakes here, moonquakes, um, down on the surface of the moon. Um, one of them broke relatively quickly for some reason. Um, but four of them continued working for quite a long time, like seven or eight years or something. Um, and so they got a whole slew of data. And in that time, they measured things. They, got, they saw that there were moonquakes. They were looking very puzzled. Point of curiosity. So here on Earth, uh, the tectonic plates move around, and that's what gives us our earthquakes. Mm. Now, am I right in thinking that that's not the same for the moon? Yes, I think so. That there aren't plates in the same way. The 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 crust is more uh, one solid mass, but with the potential for shrinkage, um, and that creates uh, presumably in the same way that our plates on the Earth are moving around, but they don't move in a uniform. I'm not a geologist. <laughs> they don't move a nice sort of smooth flow. Um, you get they get sort of stuck, and then you'll get a, a, a sort of sudden sudden jerk when the two things kind of slip past each other. Um, so that causes your quake. In a similar way, presumably the shrinkage of the moon isn't a perfectly uniform. It gets smaller by a fraction of a millimeter every million years. It's a kind of it suddenly goes <clears throat> and kind of that's my technical term. Um, shakes <laughs> but, but that's what makes you wrinkly as a moon uh, exactly so yeah. like, i mean obviously you've got wrinkles from other processes but that's the you can actually see lines in yeah. the moon surface from that happening it's kind of cool. so this is this is the part the current bit because obviously you might say well hang on this day was taken 50 years ago why is it only just been discovered now they saw the earthquakes moonquakes all that time ago um but they have been studying a group of been studying very very uh Brilliant um, imagery from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, mm, uh, LRO, which is wonderful. It's a thing which has been nipping around the moon recently and has been taking 
great imagery of the landing sites and all aspects of it. Um, if you're in a rush, just uh, Google Google Moon, and, oh, and that, most of that is LRO is that data. Oh, yeah, so cool. you can very quickly play around with it, and there's there's other ways to get at it, but that's a very just quick one. Even if you're not in a rush, just Google Google it's, it's Moon. It's quite nice because all the astronaut photos, like the panoramas that they took, you can like double click on them and it like drops you in, and so the the picture sort of wraps around your screen, and you're like, oh. So there there is a lot of pretty stuff in there. So it's and, not just LRO. Yeah, and the LRO is. I can't remember what it is, but it's a few meters of resolution on this. No, it must be higher than that, isn't it? It's getting. Uh, it's, it's, so it's got two months. different modes. So there's yeah. like a low resolution entire surface map and the really high resolution stuff. You've got to work harder to dig into that. But mm. I think for all the fun sites, yes. the Google Moon's got a good chunk of that. So, yeah. so they've used LRO data to look and they've seen these sort of regions where there seem to be sort of odd ridges um, along the moon's surface. Um, which are not huge. These are like meters high. You know, they're, they're not they're not like great mountain ranges like our tectonic plate system on the Earth is created, but just sort of wrinkles, little wrinkly bits. Um, <laughs> and the beauty is that they've used the data from the Apollo missions to try and pinpoint where the earthquakes were. And an awful lot of the earthquakes which they detected back then, they can now see were relatively close to where these regions of shrinkage, where these lines are. Um, which is just—it's just a great. I know it's like fifty years science experiment, um, and it's, it's sort of made the moon seem a bit alive. Yeah, because they—they like I think the article it was like it's—it's it's dynamic. It's actually having rumbles, and some of the rumbles were not small as well. Yeah. Like you could occasionally get quite a serious. There's something like a magnitude five earthquake equivalent. Does anyone know how heavy that is? Is like does that make a table shake? Does yeah, it, I think it, it does. Like, okay, so you you would feel that obviously. Yes. But I, th- I think if you get magnitude, like, you know, you, you get woken up by a by a five quake if it's nearby. Okay. Um, it's not going to knock down a building, but it's, you know, it's noticeable. You'd, um, you'd set up and take notice for sure. You would. <laughs> if you're on the moon, there was nothing else happening, and it's suddenly a five quake yeah. <laughs> rippled by. Um, so um, the other thing is that looking at these regions, you can see because when, with the lunar surface, uh, the the newly exposed surface is kind of brighter and whiter. Um, so if you look at something like um, Tycho Crater, which is the awesome big crater oh, that's yeah. southern towards the south of the moon, um, you can see these radial lines where there's all this stuff thrown out, um, and which is whiter and brighter. And in the same way, along these fault lines, they think they can see regions where there's been sort of material, like rock flows or boulders sort of have moved. And so you've got fresh material has been exposed by these quakes along these lines, which is, again, just oh, it's a really lovely yeah, it's kind of combination. I, I should probably put in that caveat that it looks white to us, but on average, everything's the colour of dirty <laughs> yeah. tarmac. I think it's marginally the, less dirty tarmac. Yeah, and because of the contrast and the fact that you've got the full glare of the sun on it, our eyes aren't very good at seeing that sort of relative shift between the, the, the shades. Yeah, but, so uh, yeah, it's mostly a dull grey colour. <laughs> with time, it'll get darker. So it's mm. whiter on the moon, generally speaking, means newer. I think is a reasonable simplification, but uh, I'm not really new. I mean, you know, still maybe tens, of, yeah. hundreds I, of thousands. Of years. I think the seas. I might be wrong on this, but you know, I'm used to that. Uh, the I think the seas are darker in general because there's more. It's more iron rich. Yeah, yeah. Um, the basaltic so stuff that, that's thinking, yeah. filled those in. The so seas are different. That they? that is a slight yeah. change again, but yeah. um, in general, that's that's true. Yeah. Well, okay. I was going to mention this later on the, in, the, in the blemishes section of the podcast, but um, LRO sticking with LRO has found the Beersheet crash site. So this was the Israeli um, moon lander that, that successfully landed, just <laughs> harder than expected, <laughs> um, so crashed is another way to put it. Um, but at that crash site, there's a big white area around the ah, craft cool. because it kicked up all that dust just underneath. Yeah. So it is, that is properly fresh. 
But of course, because the moon has so little um, variation on it in terms of like, there's no weathering, there's no aging of the material necessarily, that looks really crisp white, which looks a lot like these ridges and things that you see. So it, it shows that that is just material that's come from underneath the top layer, exposed yeah. and it is this much brighter colour. It's a near real time it's test kind of that, that, that theory is correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, during Apollo, they had a lot of fun because I don't think they did this for the earlier couple, but once a few of the seismometers were down, they were able to remote pilot the Saturn 4B. So that's kind of just the shell that held the LEM and did the final bit to get them into orbit. They could actually direct that to uh, actually impact the moon's surface. And I think they were able to register those on the nice. seismometers. So it's, so it's a, um, an object of known mass. And those holes are in the LRO data as well. So uh, the, yeah. that's quite cool because they use those things also for detecting meteorite impacts uh, that you could you would see sort of unlike a quake which would be a bit of a sort of a low rumble you've got kind of poof events which sorry i don't know why the sound effects today are gonna be hard for editing um so you, you kind of got these more kind of instant effects which were meteorite impacts so a short sharp one yes it's more of a meteorite hitting that'd be a better thing to say short sharp i like that but you can even tell if they're like shallow or deep and stuff right and these yeah, are all yeah. shallow right yeah. it's just like right on the crust and yeah. and because it's such a small change but and so i wonder if actually crashing the or was it the saturn 4b in in as you say that's a known mass known yeah. speed it gives you a calibration point for when you're trying to work out well we just heard a ping how big was that rock it's like well how does it compare to the Saturn? That's quite cool. Yeah, but like, like, as, as with all things moon-related, I, 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 somebody I fell down an article rabbit hole, and there was actually, they, they had seismic charges. The astronauts what? apparently were deploying seismic charges to calibrate the seismometers. Oh, that's beautiful. But they didn't get set off until they left. So the literal explosive charges left behind. And now, apologies if this is wrong, because I haven't had a chance to double-check that, but just I read it in an article as I was, I was trawling through stuff to find out something else. And I was like, wow, okay. So like, not only did they bring plutonium with them, which I think is one of the reasons why these things had power for as long as they did. Yeah, they course, had, because yeah. um, I don't think solar panels were used at all in Apollo. Not so really just what, enough, I think people just assume solar panels were there all yeah. the time for these kind of missions but that's that's not the case and and yeah so it turns out they were bringing some genuinely dangerous bits of kit with them um and i can see why they would wait till they left before they set yeah. off the calibration charges but i don't know how big they were i mean you know it's you know maybe just a little uh, under the soil kind of I, thing or i think regardless though you're going to spend you know three days in a transit van volume with two other people traveling mm. to the moon with a nuclear reactor. Oh yeah, and can you bring this small bomb along with you as well, please? Yeah, and we're not going to let you roll down any windows. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's that. Oh, that's... Like that is just of all the things you could bring. Here's a small bomb. It's not high on my list. That is a brave. It move. might be a really dinky wee bomb. I don't. Know, but we need to find this I out. I don't think I it think matters. Think that <laughs> I think we should re- return to this point. How big were the the, the charges they left? Uh, I don't know that. I will. I promise. I will yeah. find out because I, I sense we're going to have cool. to do an actual, you know, Apollo Eleven anniversary special or something, aren't we? So that we may have to take you to the moon and back and uh, be a bit silly with it as much as possible. Um, so we can we can give you all our favourite tidbits, I guess. Including the smells. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a with, fully immersive experience. Sorry, Carol. <laughs> sticking with the reminiscing uh, that we've already started doing with the Apollo missions, oh, yeah. um, what else oh, do you want to reminisce day. about? 
Well, it's quite nice because, you know, given that NASA have just announced recently that they're going to go back and China are already talking about going back as well. It's 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 sort of quite prescient that we're now a full 50 years on from the Apollo 11 mission. So that's the 20th of July is the the big day where Neil and Buzz got their names in the history books. Um, But the there's a lot of stuff happening and I'm really excited because there's been way more buzz around this than I might have naively expected. I was I was a bit of an Apollo nerd. And I was kind of, I thought it might just sort of pass and we'd see America doing some really fun stuff. But there's like loads of Apollo themed things happening up and down. Um, uh, there's a website called, oh, rubbish, I've forgotten. It's Go Stargazing, I think. But if you Google um, Apollo 50th Anniversary UK 2019 or something to that effect, this Go Stargazing website seems, I'm not sure who maintains it, but they've done a really good job of pulling together every single event that the UK is currently hosting that has a moon landing theme to it and you get a wee map and you can go and find your nearest science center or your nearest sort of public talk. I believe we may be in there for one at Dynamic Earth later. Um, mm-hmm. But the um, it's really handy because the science centers have got little bits of kit. You've got the, uh, don't forget the new movies uh, coming out. The So uh, as far as Edinburgh is concerned, that'll be the cameo in the film house at least. I don't know if it's getting a more general release, but that's the film called Apollo 11. And oh, this is going to be fun because it'll it'll drive the conspiracy theorists nuts because they they've literally found a box of footage, film footage that nobody's seen for fifty years, and they found it, remastered it, and it, apparently it's stunning. I've heard nothing but good things about this film, and I cannot wait to go and see it. So that's that's high on my list. Do um, you think they've actually refaked a whole another <laughs> box worth of footage? <laughs> My God, the dedication of these well, people—they go back the, and like make a whole new set of fake. There's, there's the occasional, oh, there's a, the occasional chain of events that makes you go. Oh, it's not making our job any easier because the there was the one of the things that made me sad was that the original magnetic tape that contained the actual received data from Neil Armstrong's first footsteps on the moon has seemed to have gone missing, and I think even NASA admitted they couldn't figure out where that had ended up. And it wasn't, I don't think it was just outright negligence. I think genuinely somebody went, we better look after that. So they put it in a safe room somewhere and it may have just been mislabeled or has been overwritten. At the time, those tapes were not cheap and they needed them for all the other Apollo missions. But as it turns out, if they'd hung, hung on to those, that footage could have been much, much clearer and prettier to us. We could have remastered it in a similar fashion to how you can remaster analog film and so we've lost something a little bit priceless, which is a shame. So then the fact that they found this treasure trove is like, yay, we've got some new stuff. And, you know, we're like the rest of the planet. We're going to be taken along with that and we'll feel like we're kind of in the room a little bit more. And I'm genuinely excited about that because documentaries up until now have been very much uh, looking back and the footage has been quite grainy. And occasionally you get it polished up like in the shadow of the moon. Did a good job. That's another good one to go and find if you can see that getting screened anywhere. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff happening. So I, my reminiscing is, is sort of nice because it's it's very timely and it's got everybody looking at the moon again and going, oh, wouldn't it be cool? Just get back there again and obviously up the diversity count of human beings that are that are stepping on the surface. Well, so. <laughs> it would be hard. It would not be hard. But it yeah. is what people are dedicated to do. So NASA have also announced, I believe NASA announced it, <laughs> that they intend to be back on the moon's surface by 2024 with it. the first female American astronaut to walk on the moon. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a very valid reason for going back without, never mind anything else, you know, the legacy value of getting people back into science and engineering, all the jobs you create by trying to do human exploration. As scientists, I think, well, 
for myself anyway, I'm aware that you can send more robotic missions to far-flung places and not risk any lives doing it. But I, I do think there is a sort of a very useful sort of engagement sort of legacy mm. with all this kind of human exploration stuff. And as much as I love the ISS, it's it's always been a little bit directionless in terms of what it was what it was there for or why why we need it. And sometimes it's just like go to the moon, learn how to do that again, go to Mars. And that seems to be the current timeline. And they're also talking about fun mission parameters, which may change. You know, it's not going to be the Apollo style where you sort of rendezvous in lunar orbit. Um, or if you do do a rendezvous, they're calling it like this lunar gateway. Have you oh, seen the gateways? Yeah, gateways but they, they've really not specified what that means. It sounds like they're wanting an orbital station in yeah. lunar orbit that's a potential staging post. And the gateway is designed to get there autonomously so you can save a lot on fuel and you can use ion thrusters. And, and you know, I think that's the order of the day is our, our rockets aren't as big as Saturn V at the moment. So we've got to have more bang for buck with mm. what we can fit on top of those rockets. So that on its own is going to be a lot of fun engineering things to solve and lots of I, messes to be made too. <laughs> I think it's interesting you say about you could send robots. You could. But what we've just been talking about, like actually the polar astronauts went and put seismometers on there. They set off detonators. They did, they did so many things whilst they were on the moon. They brought back nearly 400 kilos of lunar rock. Uh, they, they drove around, they took pictures, they found different types of rock. They, well, if they'd they, stay they behind, should, we could have got an easy another 50 kilos or something there. That's, that's well, a lot of true, fuel you're saving right there. But, <laughs> but just, just in the sense of, to build a robot to do all the things that one astronaut can do on the surface, is tr- you're looking skeptically at me, mine, but I, um, I, I think it's damn tricky to do that. I think that's true, but I question, could I send 10 dedicated robots rather than ah, one human? That's, and no, with those 10 dedicated robots be better than one human? And I, mm, I'm not sure. I, because I, I, I agree, yeah, the jury's out, I think. It, <laughs> I insights like that we just described. Insights laid seismometers and everything else. It has. And it has more science and will be there to do long-term science, which you can't do with humans in the same way. Okay, mm. you need to give them food and water and keep them alive and all that kind of gubbins um, and get them back at some point. But I, I, I agree that doing human spaceflight is more important in some ways. But is it more bang for your buck? I don't, if scientifically bang for your buck, I don't think so. It is, it's really hard to quantify that stuff, yeah. isn't it? So the, I mean, people have tried and yeah. done the sort of modern day cost of Apollo and everything. And for those of you who might be worried that this is just going to waste money, it's not, you're not really setting fire to the money in a big pile. We've used that argument before, but the, um, you were, it's all salaries mainly. I mean, the hardware itself is comparatively tiny fraction of what you're spending. A lot of this is, is the, the people that you need to actually yeah. design what you need and get it built. And it's hard to sort of, moan about that i mean you know that's a lot of high-tech jobs you can't you know, like, well, well okay but then i'm uh, not saying you should because we're getting paid on those kind of salaries but, but then you can't that, moan about it I, I, again i think you know it's part of what it means to be human too so there's a, another key point and you've just given me a skeptical face there william sir but the, like you know it's like telling a composer not to compose or an artist not to paint or we are human beings and once we have figured out how to survive and by the way take care of the planet, which I think is arguably the thing we should be spending all our money on right now. Um, there's still leftovers for doing this kind of fun stuff. And if we don't, we, we'll sort of, we're not human anymore, that kind of thing. So that's, you know, it's quite deep and philosophical for me, who's tired and feeling old. <laughs> and of course, all these technologies aren't developed in vacuum, although a lot of them are developed for vacuum. Right. Um, 
you know, there is spin-outs that come from all this technological development from all these sort of lofty mission mission goals that have far more real impact in day-to-day life, in mm. environment, whatever you want to describe. There's probably some way of linking it back to these grand space exploration methods. Yeah. So it's not a simple concept by any means. So I think we, that maybe one set of numbers we should put in, just for a better perspective, is when Apollo was at its height, it was drawing about 4.5% of the US federal budget. Today, NASA get less than half a percent. So just to put in perspective what sort of a task they're now embarking on, without a significant increase in funding, they might struggle. But I also think there's ways you can make that as efficient as possible. But it's just, I'm trying to sort of point out, this is a mammoth task. It's not, the moon is far away. Um, and we will talk more about that next month. Okay, so just, just too much. Um, on this, we're going to ask, in, in recording for posterity, <laughs> what's everyone's bets on the 2024 date coming true? On a, like a, like a like marks a out a 10 in, or, yeah. Yeah, okay, a one in whatever number you want to say. We'll go with Ali first. Uh, I want it to be higher, but I think it's like, I think there's a one in five, one in 10 chance, maybe. It's like I'm okay. not overly confident that time that's not going to slide it's like 2024 seems awfully close given this gateway thing doesn't even exist yet so yeah william by the end of 2024 yeah give it one in ten thousand not not a chance take that (laughs) not a chance it's it's possible china's already done a lot of the legwork yeah. so okay, but it's this for the nasa I'm, one well i'm gonna say someone okay. someone oh, like, oh 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 okay. well, well okay let's do nasa first yeah <laughs> and then we'll do so, so I, i'm gonna say a one in five for nasa doing one in five i'm from people i've spoken to he says you know rubbing his rubbing his collar and, <laughs> you know, like my contacts i've got pals there's, there's quite a lot of confidence in this and that could be bravado that would be very American. Can but we just count a flyby? No, I want, no, I want, want, I want no boots, steps. boots on the and, ground. And just for the record, January the 1st, 2025. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. No, no. I, and, that's a failure. In my, my, in, I'm in, happy in to this, be wrong. This, this odds book. <laughs> uh, okay, so that was for NASA doing it. What about just someone? I think if you include anybody, so bearing in mind that's probably China, um, I think the odds double. So I would maybe say there's a one in... One in four chance, one in maybe maybe one in two is as much. No, I don't think so. We're still going so. to 2024. Yeah. I'm sorry, 33% <gasps> chance no by way. 2024. I think I want it to be so. So I'm going to. The rocket to do it doesn't yet exist. I think we should put our money where our mouth is here, gentlemen. The, the yeah. rocket doesn't exist. Well, okay. to be fair, you can launch an Apollo with two Falcon Heavies as long as you join them together when they get up there. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's what you would want to do, but yeah. Okay. If on 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 day someone sets foot, the next person sets a boot on the ground, we owe each other a pint. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I love it much. On this. <laughs> Actually, I didn't say a pint of what. Pint of whiskey. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, a malt. We're getting single malts. <laughs> Winners and losers all. Instantly, if if I may caveat my answer, I'm not Here saying I don't think it could be done. I think it's highly unlikely to. Okay. In, in the sense of if if America said we're going to spend five percent of our GDP, I think they might get there by about twenty twenty five, maybe, <laughs> just. But they ain't going to do that, not for a minute. And I, therefore... I admire your healthy skepticism, sir. Yeah, I am. I'm going to do my best to remain glasses half full on this. 
We're going to give one last topic just to, to discuss. It's been quite prescient on Twitter and in the news generally. Um, and that is the launch of the Starlink constellation. So this is um, a SpaceX program to launch a series of a, a large network of satellites to provide high-speed and clearly low-latency broadband to pretty much the entire world uh, using a cluster of satellites in three orbital shells in different patterns going around the planet. So you've got essentially full coverage to this network from anywhere on the planet at all times. Now, this is a much bigger project. There's 120,000 satellites or something. 12,000 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, satellites in the full constellation, and they've launched the first 60. Now, if you watch the launch, this is on their um, Falcon 9 launcher mm-hmm. using a reused fairing, so all actually quite interesting in that regard. I'll admit, I hadn't even heard of it until I saw that picture yeah. of it on the thing. So nope. I just like I had Same clearly way. not been paying attention to such things. And <laughs> they launched 60 simultaneously, which I'm pretty sure is the largest cluster launch ever. There's been a number of cluster launches, that's going to be one of the biggest. And there was all, these are all flat satellites with solar panels that are all like stacked up in this big, this rack. Very cool. Rack. And then the whole thing launches. And then You're over, making it sound like an IKEA flat pack thing. <laughs> tell you, it kind of looks like it. But self-assembly, which would be much nicer for IKEA. <laughs> uh, and then as it sort of goes out on its orbital trajectory, each of these satellites slowly separate and unfold and begin to work and then gradually move out into separate areas of their orbit parameters. Um, and they're all designed, they have anti-collision detection built into themselves so they can manoeuvre around themselves and other things that they detect coming. So, you know, they kind of remove some of the space debris risks and that kind of stuff, which is all amazing and all actually fantastic work. And I think really interesting things. And there's lots of companies looking at doing this. There's a, there's a whole new field of, of research and things happening in this. Yeah, so SpaceX are just the first. Yes. Yeah. But that's not why it's hit the press quite so heavily. I think particularly well, in our community, our press, our press particularly, <laughs> our very niche press, is the question of light pollution for astronomical observation. And this is to say that as the satellites pass overhead, the solar panels and the receivers catch sunlight and are visible to telescopes, certainly, and as shown by this first launch, to the naked eye. And this could be a problem for astronomers. Discuss. Pretty yeah, much. I mean, yeah. It, it got a bit heated on it Twitter, did, and, and and a few of the things maybe we shouldn't be quoting Elon, um, but you know he sort of part was, of the argument. I think if Elon hadn't Elon said something which was just blatantly false, and well, I mean, the, the comments from statement. SpaceX were particularly from Elon was on Twitter was that it wouldn't be visible. He said zero percent visibility. Satellites, five thousand satellites currently, no one ever sees them. Um, so it, they were quite dismissive, weren't they? The, yeah. the, the like, tweets were sort of like, don't worry, stop. You know, like, that's, that's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> you do see them if you're an astronomer. Yeah. I mean, heck, if, you just, if you're just a relatively, like, you spend some time in a dark sky, you see a satellite. Yeah, yeah. It's a really um, interesting point because, you know, obviously I don't think we would ever claim to own the night sky any more than anybody else, right? And there are laws in place to sort of stop anybody claiming it for one nation or another. But it's a, it's a really interesting debate because... This problem is only going to get worse, and SpaceX is arguably in the firing line just because they're the first to do mm. this mega and constellation. Of, and because of his response, and um, and and you know, I think a lot of people right now will be crunching the numbers to get some really specific yeah. things. And fair play to astronomy Twitter because they were throwing out estimates left, right, and center. And I was like, okay, I've seen I've seen various estimates for how good slash bad this might be, and yeah. I think one of them. One of the ballpark numbers might be something like LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. This is one of our biggest and bestest telescopes that's getting built as we speak. 
and its job is to survey the entire sky as often as possible. Uh, details therein, um, but apparently every single picture it takes will have at least one of these satellites in it. One at four, least, I heard. Yeah. Um, and that's just one constellation. And we already have, what, 3,000 active or inactive things up there, not counting debris, so this is actual. So yeah, it's already busy up there. And this is not geostationary, is that right? So this low Earth orbit is not Very helping low. because that obviously reflects more light and you're getting yeah. a, a bigger hit. But it also is cheaper than sending really huge expensive things out to geostationary yeah. orbit to do the same job. So there's a lot of stuff to talk. I mean, like, where, where do you stand on, on this? I mean, I'm kind of... I was a bit sad that he dismissed all of ground-based astronomy and said it was rubbish and we should be building all our telescopes yeah, again, in space. Yeah, again, just not true. I think... You need consultation on it, and I don't think they had. If you get, I'm not saying that, as you say, astronomers don't have any right or claim or you know, anything like that. But I think you feel like if you're doing something like this, you should be discussing more widely. And I was intrigued to see things which were saying that you need know, to get a license to do it, but it's from like mm-hmm. you know American federal thing. It's like, well, America definitely don't own the sky. Yeah. You're not putting those satellites over America. You're putting them over the planet. Yeah. Uh, Hang on, how can your legal system say that? Okay, that's just sounding a little bit kind of. This gets into the space law. It issues. does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and we don't have a global body to make that kind of decision. I, mean, I, think I, we'll... I guess satellites isn't. It's not a new problem, is it? I mean, the no. astronomers are getting quite good at removing satellite trails yes, from, from yeah, surveys. No, somebody said it's not disastrous; it's a nuisance. I was like, yeah, yeah. it's true. And, and yeah. but I think, and that's the sort of thing. It's like actually, if you said we're going to do this because actually this is bloody good. Sorry, this is very good for the entire planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a yeah. lot of people in the world whose lives will be significantly improved by getting access to broadband. Yeah. Fair point, actually. So we want to do this. We'd like to talk to your astronomical community and work out how is this going to affect you? Where is the problem? How could we minimize the problem? Yeah. How could we try and improve things a little bit? It seems a little bit like, especially his first response. I think he has responded more positively since, actually. Okay. I've not but his initial it. response was very much just like, shut up. This is, you're talking mm-hmm. rubbish. It's like that. You just that may, that may be crap. Again, <laughs> and yeah. of course, they have got a lot dimmer as well. It's worth being clear on. When oh, yeah. they first launched, they were very bright because of the orbit they were in. I have and to say, being I clustered. It was really pretty video. Stunning. <laughs> Stunning. Sailing across and sort of twinkling as they went. And it was very pretty. Yeah. Uh, go to heavensabove.com, uh, which is an awesome website which lets you see where anything is in the night sky. You put in your location, and if, if it's visible, it will give you. Mm. Direction to look, height above the horizon, time, everything brightness. from the ISS down in yeah. terms of size, yeah. right? And and, it's all in there. You can still track these. Apparently, they're still because they're all set off in a line, but yeah. they've got small thrusters on. Yes, Krypton thrusters, which sounds like something from Superman. But I believe that causes more issues oh, because does it? the fact that they're self-correcting means their orbits are constantly changing. What so, is for this? if you're trying so to much. avoid a satellite going through the thing that you really care about in like a half-hour-long exposure. And you want to avoid that, you it's much harder for you to guarantee that you're not going to yeah. get any contamination. So there's that's an extra headache for people to try and solve. And I really don't know what the ultimate solution is. So the problem will it's going to get messier up there. It is, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And our telescopes are getting better. I mean, part of the reason my eyes aren't getting touch. any better. I just thought <laughs> no, but our telescopes are getting better. The reason one of the major funding sources for the LSST, so this big telescope, which is going to get affected by these things, is because it will be used to track asteroids. So, you know, are things which might come and wallop us at some point. This telescope is 
going to be the best tool on the planet for detecting smaller asteroids? And we were going to keep being asked that question. Basically, you know, we've got hopefully we've got every asteroid which is over a kilometer. <laughs> we've got a lot of them which are three hundred meters. This thing mm. goes down to a hundred meters, I think, in diameter sort of objects. Um, so we're going to we're going to keep wanting to do this sort of science, I think. Mm. Um, and okay, I'm not suggesting for a minute that astronomers are only doing tracking asteroids. We we are clearly going to use this telescope for other things, but it's not like we're doing it. You know, this is a pretty useful telescope. Mm. It's as useful as any telescope gets, in fact, in terms of for the average person. I was trying to think of how, how it affected my observations because occasionally I do see satellites um, mm. in the sort of finder images when oh, I'm at really? the telescope. Elon said you never see anything. Well, I think anyone who's ever gone out at night, you can see a whole ton at night these yeah. days. It's busy up there. And, it, you know, with us being in northern latitudes, the sun's not that far below the horizon. Yeah. So it that, is worse for us. That silighty cat, silighty? Yeah. <clears throat> I speak good England today. Uh, that catching the satellite thing lasts for a lot longer yeah. the further north you go. So that's interesting. So that's the only reason you play satellite tracking stations in northern and southern latitudes is because they're easier to spot. Oh, I see. Mm. Yeah, because you've got more sun bounce and all. Yeah. So yeah, if if a satellite had blown through my spectrograph essentially, so it's just a it's like a narrow slit on the sky, and you get the starlight to fall into the slit, and you turn it into a big rainbow. Very cool job. Uh, but the if the satellite had come through, I would have a slice of what looks like a solar spectrum on my target, and I would have no way of easily correcting for that. So I would see solar features where I was hoping not to see features. So, you know, it's it's interesting how it impacts in different ways on different instruments. But, you know, it's again, it's something you could potentially correct for if you knew it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, just throw away that data start again, probably. Yeah. Nuisance, not a disaster. You know? it's, it, at this point, these things are midges, not mosquitoes. <laughs> that's a good yeah. analogy I like that. um, yeah. you just got to be careful that they don't evolve into something more because okay at this point they're midges but what comes next what what are the next satellite yes. networks work are they bigger are they bigger satellites are they faster I tell you what, are they are they more is, anyone that's ever gone insane in a midgy swarm you know like <laughs> that might be the right analogy to use because a few midges you don't know it's, but at that moment where you're like oh my gosh I'm in a cloud of literally a million of these things and it's like <laughs> the Alfred Hitchcock film or something um, so yeah, we might get to that point where our sky yeah. is constantly yeah. busy. And I think you can see that. Yeah. I think, can we just you know, can we be involved in the debate? Yeah, perhaps more than we have been so far. Like you're going to do this. These are the reasons why. Yeah. Quite nice if you were kind of careful. In yeah. exactly I'm also quite glad that you're not allowed to do anything for advertising purposes. You know, like mm. not a giant Coca-Cola sign or something. So that's nice. I think there, there is legislation, I believe, to yeah. stop you doing that for commercial purposes. Um, the RT ones we've talked about in the past. Yeah, we have. But compared to this sort of impact, the RT yeah. ones are arguably quite small because it's a yeah. single object and it won't stay up and there they're for fleeting. too long. Yeah, they yeah. disappear. So, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. It's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. I think you'll hear more about this. Sure will. Okay, and time is also fleeting at this point, I think. So we should bring the podcast to a close. And thank you all very much for listening. Thanks, all. Bye.